Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. As I mentioned recently, I've expanded the scope of our podcast just slightly this season for the purpose of bringing you some guests whose work can help you personally in life. My thinking is that if I can help you improve your well-being, you'll have new ideas to share with your team to help them with theirs. So today, we're going to be talking about time and how to more wisely use it to experience a happier and more enriched life. Please though, we are not going to bring a jar out and put our big rocks in first. And we're also not going to discuss the four quadrants of effective time management. I'm assuming you have a solid grounding in these ideas already. And let me recommend reading Stephen Covey's classic, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, if you'd like a refresher. My guest today is social psychologist and UCLA Anderson School of Management professor, Cassie Holmes, who has devoted her career to researching the role that time plays in our lives, with a specific interest in how different ways of thinking about and allocating our time might lead to greater life satisfaction and well-being. And her new book called Happier Now, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most was just named one of Amazon's best books of 2022. So for starters, we're gonna explore why so many of us feel time poor. This idea that there's never enough time in the day to accomplish everything we need to. And so we regularly miss going to the gym and spend too little time with our friends and our family. And ironically, when we fantasize about quitting our jobs and fleeing to a Hawaiian island for a year or more to recover from our time poverty, Holmes's research shows that having too much free time actually leads to unhappiness. For us humans to be thriving, we need just two to five hours max of discretionary time per day, an amount that she's certain most of us can find. By the way, if you're wondering why having more than five hours of free time every day makes us less happy, it was explained in a book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being about 30 years ago. Bottom line, after sitting on the beach, drinking beers and watching the waves come and go, it doesn't take long for us to get bored and wanting a new challenge and purpose. Not surprising, research from Daniel Kahneman shows that, separate from commuting to work and doing chores at home, the time we spend at work tends to make us the least happy. So we're gonna explore ways Cassie has learned to elevate the work experience for ourselves and for the people we leave. Additionally, when people get a little long in the tooth, that's to say they grow older and wiser, they tend to treat time more reverently than those of us who've yet to fully accept that our lives are short. So we're going to discuss some of this elder wisdom so you'll have no regrets about how you spend your precious time in life and most specifically where you didn't. And finally, you'll all recall that Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones famously sang the song called Time is on my side. And my hope is that after this next hour with Cassie, you'll be humming the same tune. And with that, let me welcome you to the podcast, Cassie Holmes. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation and I like to just get right to it. So in your book, you write that, and I'll quote you, we live in a culture driven toward productivity, so much so that busyness has become a status symbol that has taken to signal an individual's worth. And that really struck me as a truth. And I guess I have a couple of questions here. The first one is, 
Is busyness truly a component of our happiness or even our human value? And where should beingness rank in our priorities? Yeah, that's a really good question. And while I shared research that shows that busyness has become somewhat of a status symbol, I don't think it should be because it is actually, I think, counters where our values lie and where sources of satisfaction really sort of pull from and even actually success. Because what busyness and even sort of productivity is sort of thinking about and driven towards is efficiency. It's about getting as much done as possible as quickly as possible, but that is ignoring the value or the worth of those activities or those tasks. And so I think that we would benefit from shifting away from striving towards busyness and productivity or actually efficiency per se and thinking about more what is worthwhile, what are worthwhile investments of our time. And even to your second question, what you're suggesting and which we actually sort of pick up in our work is that in fact, when we are driven towards busyness and this constant doing mode of sort of be driven by our to-do list so that we can check things off, what that does is it almost like bleeds over into how we experience those activities and how we engage in those activities and also how we engage in our time off <laughs> from, you know, the work week. And so that doing mode carries over into our weekends and in often cases even our vacations such that we never get a break and the opportunity to simply be which is so important for our emotional well-being and sort of countering burnout how did we get to you know conflating busyness with anything productivity happiness accomplishment human value how did that happen Yeah, I mean, it seems that when people say that they're busy or they're communicating it or even for themselves, it's signaling that you are needed (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that you are competent. And because if you're so busy, that means that there are expectations of you to deliver. But again, it's almost become a heuristic as to being needed and being competent and having the responsibility to invest in these really sort of worthwhile ways without sort of missing the fact that what is the content of what you're doing. It's interesting, though, because even though busyness has become somewhat of a status symbol where people sort of share, you know, I'm so busy, we have found actually in ongoing research and sort of current work that even though the recipient perceives you as trying to signal your self-importance and your worth, what is actually being expressed is stress and feeling overwhelmed. And so that also points to the downside of this culture where it's simply about being busy because the consequences on our emotional well-being is that we feel stressed and overwhelmed. And in many cases, this sense of time poverty, having sort of too much to do and not enough time to do it has really detrimental effects on us. And I share in my book, actually, sort of to open the book, that it 
almost led me to consider leaving my career as an academic that I'd worked so hard for simply because this pressure of doing and doing more and more all the time was depleting. And I didn't feel like I could keep up with also wanting to be a good parent, also wanting to be a good partner, also wanting to be a good friend, and the never-ending pile of chores. That is, if we are driven towards this doing and this busyness, it comes at the cost of our both our emotional well-being as well as our persistence in sort of our paths. What shifted you? I know you had an epiphany, like, I can't take this any longer, but <laughs> obviously you didn't quit. You continued. So how did you find the middle ground? Yeah, part of it is driven by research that I, we then went on to test is this question. So this, you know, in those busy days where it is so hectic, often we daydream, and I did, was thinking, like, if only I quit, I moved to a sunny, slow-paced island somewhere where I had all the hours of my day to spend exactly how I wanted, then surely I'd be happier, right? We have this notion that if I had more time to do what I wanted, then I would be happier. But we tested that. So with some of my colleagues, Hal Hirschfield and Marissa Sharif, we looked at what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their happiness. And Across studies, and one of the studies, we analyzed data from the American Time Use Survey, which looks at for tens of thousands of working as well as non-working Americans, how they spent a regular day. And from that, we could calculate how much time they spent on discretionary activities. That is how much time they spent on activities that people typically want to do versus non-discretionary obligatory <laughs> activities, things that we have to do. And... What we found was really interesting. The pattern of results across our studies showed an inverted U-shape, so like an arc or a rainbow, suggesting that actually our happiness goes down on both ends of the spectrum. So yes, while people with too little time, too little discretionary time in their days are less happy, and that's because they feel stressed and overwhelmed, what I think was even sort of perhaps more surprising and interesting and speaking to the daydreams that we have in those very busy days is that there is also such thing as having too much time. We found in at least that data set that those with more than approximately five hours of discretionary time in their day were less satisfied. And digging into why, what we found is that we are driven to be somewhat productive now, and that's it's sort of in contrast to being busyness as the end point, but we do want to have some of the hours of our days with something to show for how we spend those hours. That is, we are averse to being idle. And when we have sort of like all the hours of our days with nothing to show for how we invested those hours it undermines our sense of purpose. And with that, we feel less satisfied. And so that finding, in addition to my sort of reflection that for me, my work is a great source of purpose. And I will also say that even the data points to, it doesn't have to be 
paid work per se that gives us a sense of value in the time that we spend engaging in volunteer work or sort of investing in a hobby in which you're developing yourself and your interests, social connection. These are all really worthwhile ways of spending time in addition to, for me, work. I realized that for me, my work, conducting research that informs happiness, engaging with my students and relaying that research is a great source of purpose. So I realized that the answer for me wasn't to quit. The answer is sort of (laughs) how do I invest the hours that I do have available in the day And actually, our our data shows that between two and five hours of discretionary time in the day, it's actually the relationship is flat. That is, there's no relationship between how much available time you have and your happiness. And so it's really pointing to the answer for happiness is more how you invest the hours that you have rather than how many hours you have available to invest. And that sort of spurred my trying to figure out empirically (laughs) how do we invest the hours that we have available to make our time feel rich because it's not, as we found, it's not about being rich. It's about making the time that we have rich. So in the context of 24-hour day, you were feeling stressed. And and by the way, the conclusion that you came to strikes me as being the conclusion that most people want, which is, It's not reasonable for me to give up my career. It's not reasonable for me not to work hard. It's not reasonable for me not to commit to, you know, the different things that I'm doing. But I also want to have a life and I don't want to go home and be exhausted and have this Groundhog Day experience of my whole life is work and nothing else. So that's kind of where you were and you pivoted, but you pivoted with the knowledge that, hey, I don't really need to be on a beach in Hawaii as an alternative to being a professor at UCLA. What I need to do is to find two to five hours a day for myself that I can do things that can enrich me. So am I summarizing that correctly? And if so, how did you find those hours? Yeah, you summarized correctly until actually the very end where I think where I've gotten to is that it's not about the amount of time that you spend for your personal life versus in your work for your work, period. It's really across the hours of your days, both your personal life or the hours that you spend outside of work and the hours that you spend in your work is figuring out how do you maximize the amount of time that you spend on activities that feel worthwhile, minimize the amount of time that you spend that's wasted. And it's not just sort of the amount of time you spend on those activities, it's really getting the most out of that time that you spend. And so I would actually suggest it's not this trade-off between your personal life and your work life, it's really all of these hours are available to us and we need to be really intentional on how we spend them. So in the workday, making sure that you're maximizing and protecting time for the work that really matters, the work that is in line with your purpose, like what you're setting out to do, you know, that has the impact, the strategic important work and minimizing the amount of time, work hours wasted that aren't necessarily contributing to what you're working towards and, you know, and therefore 
that makes you feel really busy, but not necessarily satisfied and not necessarily making any progress. Similarly, in your hours outside of work, how do you protect time for and really invest in the time on those activities that are so fulfilling and so worthwhile in those relationships that are so important to us. And in both cases, it's not about quantity of hours spent. It's about making sure that that time feels worthwhile. And that comes from both the activity itself, but also it comes from how you are sort of mentally engaging in that activity. You know, it's interesting because I've noticed in this podcast over the last four or five years that when there's an idea in the ether, it gets picked up by other people. And in preparation for this, I just happened to see this article in the New York Times this weekend about Cal Newport. And he's basically saying that we're overwhelmed. We feel overwhelmed by time. A lot of it has to do with technology, with being emailed all the time, slacked all the time, texted all the time. And his conclusion is that we need to do fewer things and do them well. Like that's where the satisfaction is going to come out. And it resonated because I had just finished reading your book when I read this and I thought these two are in complete agreement. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's about making the quality of your time better as opposed to the quantity of things that you're doing increase, which is where the busyness comes from. And as opposed to it doesn't even for it to be worthwhile, you don't need, you know, a whole, whole lot. It's really about the quality versus the quantity of your time. So... Historically, MBA programs, business schools were quant oriented. You know, everything was finance. Everything was how do you manipulate an income statement and make sure that your business is profitable. Very little was focused on human beings and how to manage effectively a human being. But your focus is an entirely different level, meaning that suddenly MBA students are learning about how to make their lives happier. And I'm wondering how that happened. So in other words, your class is called Applying the Science of Happiness to Life Design. So you're trying to integrate happiness within, it's not one event that happens 20 years from now, it's happening all the time. But there's a demand for this. There's a demand for you. There's a choice that you made to dedicate your life to this. And it struck me as reading your book, I was like, this would not have existed in the MBA program at a top business school even five, 10 years ago. So I'm just curious as to what's going on in society that's driving this. Why are so many MBA students wanting this in addition to the core curriculum that's been traditional since business schools were established? Yeah, and it's a really good question. And I will say that when I proposed this course <laughs> that I wanted to develop based off of my research and that of my colleagues to the business school, there was initially some pushback. So this was like five years ago. And the question was, why would we have a happiness course at a business school? And then I made the case. I was pointing out that what we want is to give our students the skills in order to get the job and to succeed in the job in those first few years. But also what we care about 
is the longevity and the impact of their careers. And for that, and it's not just that first job, it's five years down, 10 years down, that we want our students to thrive in their professional lives. And for that to come true, they also need to be able to thrive in their personal lives or else you see people sort of step off (laughs) the, the career track because they feel like they don't have the ability sort of to do it all, like we were saying with the role of time poverty. So fortunately, I did convince them and I also shared all of the data that shows that happy employees (laughs) are better. They are more engaged in their work. They're better performers at their work. They're less likely to not show up for work. So you see reduced absenteeism. You see reduced turnover. And so there is a sort of business case to be made for caring about employee well-being. But my sort of personal motivation was really about developing our students to become leaders. And for that, they needed to figure out how to thrive both in their personal and professional lives. But what's interesting is that that was five years ago and I had to sort of fight for the case. And very quickly, my class became popular among the MBAs. So MBAs, there was demand that they wanted to figure out how do they manage themselves in their days and design their careers so that they feel greater satisfaction and fulfillment. But since the pandemic, I don't have to make the case anymore for mm-hmm. why our happiness is important. None of us take emotional well-being for granted. With anxiety rates as high as they are, burnout rates as high as they are, we saw in the U.S., you know, the great resignation. We've seen quiet quitting, which is showing the costs of when employees don't take care and prioritize their emotional well-being, then it leads them to disengage from their work and to be disengaged from their organizations and the companies that they work for. And so it's interesting because I no longer have to make the case that our emotional well-being is important. And for leaders too, I mean, having gone through the pandemic, it was so trying For everyone at any level, I absolutely, and I can say this confidently, every single person felt unhappy at some point during the last few years, like very unhappy. And so the question is, what can we do both as leaders as well as making decisions in our own lives to inform how we feel better and not just sort of feel better in the day to day? but also feel a greater sense of satisfaction and meaning, which is what's going to make us sort of continue to feel motivated in our pursuits. So Cassie, as I'm understanding you, when you started this five years ago, when you pitched it, it was Mm -hmm. with a goal of helping your students thrive. We want them to thrive. But then the intersection of COVID and the now three years experience that we've had, we've seen the harm it's done. We've also seen 100 million people quit in America in just two years. And there's all this dust in the air and people are trying to assimilate it. I'm wondering, are you now pivoting in a way where you're saying, hey, I'm going to teach you, Mr. or Ms. MBA student, how to personally thrive in your life while you're achieving. 
And I'm also expecting you now to take that into your leadership, integrate it into how you lead and manage people and help the people who work for you to achieve the very same thing. Is that part of the class now? Yes, very much so. The focus of the class is on the individual, but once the individual knows how to take care of themselves, then the clear and obvious implication and next step is to apply that to support those on your team and those around you. It's interesting because I've been asked now to speak to so many audiences like including doctors, <laughs> lawyers, you know, leadership professionals, teachers, where in many of these cases, their professional role is to take care and support other people. But I am coming in to inform how they can take care of themselves so that they can continue to support other people. And so that's sort of the same with their MBAs. I want to teach them how to take care of themselves so that they can continue to thrive and so that they can support the folks in their business. And once they're informed on how to do this based off of the science, then absolutely it's about setting up organizational practices. It's about leading in such a way that you are supporting your organization to make sure that employees do know the impact of their work so that they feel that sense of fulfillment and meaning in their work. And also the thing that's sort of gotten lost through this is feeling a sense of true social connection, friendship through their workplace, because without that, then folks do not feel engaged and part of the organization. If you don't have a best friend at work, it's very easy to leave and to either find another job or just to quit. So that sort of lacking sense of social connection is also so critical to become aware of. You know, my work is about the heart and we don't connect in the mind, we connect in the heart. And so I have been a very fierce advocate for hybrid, but not full-time remote work because I mm -hmm. think our spirits wither if we don't have that kind of connection. But it was interesting because the first time I went out, I wrote an article for Fast Company and I expressed this. And there were plenty of supporters, but I've never had hate mail before. <laughs> and I got it. And people were yeah. like, you're a corporate shill and working by myself is the greatest thing that ever happened. And I go, yes, but it's going to cost you at some point. And it's going to cost you in the sense that you need connection. The other thing that people said to me, Cassie, was, you know what? I have friends. I have a best friend. They don't have to be in my job. I can have a best friend outside of work. So, you know, don't make this all about work. What would you say to this kind of feedback? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of hybrid too, because on the one hand, you don't need to go in every day and you can save the costs for to enable to be productive in your work. You know, commute time is experienced very negatively. And so if there are a couple days a week that you sort of reclaim that time, it's very effective. And also folks learn that they can be very productive at home. But to your point, I absolutely agree that the long-term cost of not going in any days, and I would suggest it's more important to actually coordinate the days that you're going in mm -hmm. to Great. create the opportunity for friendship and connection. Of course, I hope 
that people establish their friendships and strong relationships outside of work. I mean, that is so critical. But given that so many hours of our days are spent working, that it is important to generate connection and friendship in the workplace as well, because you don't want to just sort of move through the time and have it be very transactional. We want our work lives to also be a source of fulfillment. And also you see like in Gallup data, they have this question of, do you have a best friend at work? And it does sound silly, but it's absolutely not. It is significantly predictive of engagement with work, motivation, performance, and tenure at the company, and not to mention satisfaction, job satisfaction. And it's that sort of short term, like you don't notice it initially, this sort of fraying sense of connection within our organizations, because what you do notice is that you don't have to commute every day. But the long-term effects, I absolutely attribute the quitting, (laughs) the great resignation to this lack of personal connection to the people in our firms. Well, I mean, it's interesting because when I started my career, I met my wife, I met all of my best friends in the world are from my work experience. And so I never really needed anybody encouraging me to build relationships. But I think we know now that people actually have fewer friends than we've ever seen in terms of from a metric standpoint. So we have less connection and then we're working remotely. Mm-hmm. So what's your advice to leaders to create social connection. I think I'd like for you to double down on why they should. Yeah. And then give an example of how they should. Yeah. Individuals who have friendship, not just sort of like time spent together, but a true source of friendship. And what is friendship? It is knowing about someone and feeling known by that person. It is being cared for and caring about the individual. So when you feel like you have a friend at work, then it makes you more engaged, it makes you more motivated, it makes you a better performer, and it makes you more satisfied with your job. All of these things translate into benefits for the firm because when your employees are quitting on you and you can't retain talent, that is very, very costly. And when you see that they don't feel engaged in the work that they're doing, that is very costly. So the why, I think, is empirically supported very clearly. Now, the question as to how, it does require opportunities for friendship to be formed. And that doesn't happen, you know, on a group Zoom call (laughs) in moments before, moments after. Even if you can't actually have people in the same physical space of having days where they come in, which I actually do think is important to do because that's where sort of the more organic connection and friendships are formed. But it's even sort of driving the opportunity to share. So in my class, I have this exercise that I have my students do. It's called the Relationship Closeness Induction Task. And I pair up my students and It's basically a set of questions and it's a 15 minute task. And the first set of questions, they have two minutes to do. And it's basically like, (laughs) what's your name? Why are you here? It's those things that we do to introduce ourselves. Like, why are you at Anderson? 
And then I give them five minutes to move on to the next set of questions, which are more disclosive. And it's like, what are some of your hobbies? It's about sharing activities and how people like to spend time. And in each of these questions, both the person asks and answers, and then the other person asks and answers. And that's important because to form closeness or a sense of connection, it's about escalating reciprocal self-disclosure. And escalating is sort of getting more disclosive and sharing and more personal. So the last set of questions is like, basically questions about your emotional experience in life. Like, what is your greatest source of pride? What is your greatest fear? What is your happiest childhood memory? And by asking and answering and listening to that other person, inevitably, and this is a task that's been empirically validated, the two people feel significantly closer and more connected. Friendships are formed by these questions and sharing in personal experiences. And so the reason I'm bringing this up in this sort of organizational or leadership context is that I do think it's not enough to be like, okay, this is your social time and force people to sort of socialize because that's not necessarily going to increase connection. But I do suggest that there are prompts sort of conversation prompts that lead people to share in their emotional experiences and thoughts to increase a sense of friendship. Great. I believe so strongly in what you're talking about. And I've actually facilitated a meeting of, it's a company that they've cobbled together many different companies all in the same industry, but doing something different. And so they're all CEOs and they had no connection. They were all running their own businesses and doing well in them, but they felt like there wasn't any teamwork. And so what I had them do was to come in and do a 15-minute presentation on who they were. Yeah. And tell me where you grew up. And and they were moving and inspiring. And by the time it was done, people felt like, wow, I really know these people. And I, I found common ground with them. And sometimes we don't even realize you know, who these people are that we're working with every day. So I love that. Yeah. And that's so valuable, right? Because then going forward... As there are discussions and need for collaboration, it's much more likely that you're going to reach out. When you're sort of struggling or facing challenges in work, there are also folks that you feel that you can sort of touch base with and find that support, whether it's even like sort of pragmatic of helping you through that work challenge, or even just a sense of that you're not alone in this. So I think that there are clear organizational benefits from folks feeling connection with each other. So yeah. Very good. I completely agree. Spot on. You're teaching these students to effectively become smarter in what you say is like making choices, decisions that will affect their happiness that they feel day to day, which is hard to do when you're an MBA student because of the pressures. And what are a couple of your best examples of this? Like, what are the ones that really ring the bell for you? Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's so many because in the course, each week there's a assignment and it's a, an experiential assignment. So for instance, the first one is doing a digital detox. The next week it is tracking your time 
and rating how you experience that time that you're spending so that you can sort of pull out what are those activities that are most worthwhile? What are those ways it's a waste because not only is it maybe not necessary, but it actually doesn't make you as happy as you think it might or it does. In one of the weeks, I have them exercise every day and get enough sleep. (laughs) In another week, I have them do acts of kindness to others, to write a gratitude letter, to write their own eulogy. So how do you want to be remembered? What legacy do you want to lead? And at the face of it, it doesn't sound like a very happy exercise, but it's so important because what that does is it clarifies what does ultimately matter to you as an individual at the end of your life. And so the reason I'm sort of touching on all of these is because different assignments or different exercises resonate with different folks. So at the end of the course, I have them say, what was the most impactful (laughs) assignment? And every single assignment is mentioned by at least a handful as the most impactful for them. So there is variation in what we're sort of looking for and needing in terms of our emotional well-being in the day-to-day. So I teach both regular MBAs. So these are folks in their sort of mid to late 20s starting out their careers. But I also teach executive MBAs. So these are folks in their 40s and 50s who are very well established in their careers and different pieces of it resonate differently. But across it, it is those assignments that clarify what are those ways of spending time that are truly worthwhile for you as an individual. And when you're spending the time making sure that you're getting the most out of it. So the digital detox. So this is six hours at some point during your week of being fully disconnected from the internet. So being off your phone, being off your computer. And there's a lot of anxiety because it's like, oh, people need to connect with me. And oh, I'm going to miss that time to be productive. But what they find is after maybe the initial hour where they're you know, habitually sort of reaching for where their phone is or sort of nervous about what else is going on out there that, you know, maybe someone's trying to reach them by disconnecting from these sort of possibilities and disturbances and interruptions from the outside. What it does is it allows you to fully connect with what you're doing and Mm -hmm. your immediate environment and the people that you're actually with And in many cases, actually, people end up feeling more productive because they weren't distracted by these like little unimportant tasks and really actually dig into what's right in front of them and take on the things that are more important, whether it is truly connecting with the person that's right in front of you or actually digging into thinking strategically about the work that you have. Could a a workplace manager replicate some of these? Like, could they tell everyone, find six hours and do the technology detox or have everyone write their eulogies and read them in a meeting outside of an academic environment? Is there value in that? Yeah, some would be more helpful than others. The digital detox is interesting because what it does is it shows folks that they don't need to be connected. And actually, there's value in getting disconnected in order to fully engage in what you're doing. But it doesn't need to be six hours, right? Then it is making sure that you carve out 
sort of smaller portions within your day of being disconnected. And so from an organizational perspective or leadership perspective, I absolutely it's important to allow for time in your employees, both personal life as well as workday, to not be responsive immediately. So to have these, what I call sort of no phone zones. So in order to develop and cultivate those important relationships outside of work, which are so important with our family and our friendships, of allowing your employees to make those no phone zones so that they can really, you know, I said at the beginning, it's not necessarily about how much time you spend. It's the quality of that time. But you have to allow the quality of their family time to be high (laughs) by not interrupting and by allowing them to be fully engaged. As well as during the work week, that deep thinking work, that strategic thinking, the work that actually progresses them towards the goals of their work can't happen if they are sitting in meetings every second of the day and can't happen when they are responding to pings as they're coming in. And so carving out some time for that deep thinking work to allow folks to get into a flow state, right? That's why we're most creative. We're producing at our best. We're applying the skills that we've developed and that we have. And so there are absolutely different assignments or different, I would say, insights from my book and from the course that leaders can apply You know, it's interesting because cell phones, Blackberries, have only been around for 25 years. And when I was growing up, my dad was a top executive of General Electric and took the train in from Long Island into the city and took the train home at night. And what he did on the train was read papers, you know, think about his day. There was no technology. But more importantly, when he left the office on Friday... Unless something was a crisis, there was no interruption for that weekend. So he could go play golf, which is what he did. And he had, you know, like relaxation. And then he'd fly all over the world and go back and do his work. And I think when we talk about a detox and the students saying, well, I don't know if I can pull that off and I'm in demand and people want me and I don't want to miss anything. And like we've run our world forever without that technology, without being that on. And so picking and choosing when we're on, I think, is a decision a lot more people are trying to make. Yeah. And I want to share with you an experiment because I think it's very applicable and helpful for both us as individuals as well as leaders to sort of highlight this point. And in this experiment, what we did among working professionals leading into a weekend, we randomly assigned half of them, treat this weekend like a vacation. That is, to the extent possible, think and behave in ways you would on vacation. And then we told the other half, treat this weekend like a regular weekend. And then on Monday, we reconnected with them when they were back at work. And what we found was that those who had treated their weekend like a vacation were significantly happier and more satisfied than those who treated it like a regular weekend. And then they also enjoyed the weekend significantly more. And then the question is why? Did they spend their time differently? What we found is actually not really. The driver of the positive effect 
was really a sort of mental shift. Mm-hmm. Mindset. Yeah. And touching back to your very initial questions of our conversation today, what we found was that when people treated the weekend like a vacation, they were more engaged in the moments that they were spending. They were less distracted. And with that being more engaged and more present, they enjoyed the time more. And then the weekend felt more rejuvenating. So the way that I would actually describe it is that it's shifting us from that constant doing mode to actually give that space, give ourselves the break to simply be, which is so important. And it shows up when we return to work on Monday, then, you know, we feel rejuvenated. And so I think for so many of us, we are driven to do, right? That is what has allowed us to be successful, to get things done. But we have to figure out how do we sort of create space to turn off just the doing as so that we can be, so that we can think sort of broadly and creatively, so that we can fully connect with and engage with the people that are right there in front of us, those relationships that are so important to foster. And it does happen effectively by putting phones away, making some time no phone zones, but it also is about intentionality. So figuring out, you know, what are those worthwhile ways of spending? And again, from a leadership perspective, the time that we spend at work feels worthwhile when we know the why of it, when we know the impact of it, the purpose of the work that we're doing. And while in my course, I encourage, and in the book, I have an exercise, the five whys exercise to help people identify for themselves their purpose in what they do. I think that there's so much opportunity for leaders to clarify the why, the purpose of the work, so that even when the tasks themselves don't feel fun, as folks know the reason for doing it, then it actually feels more enjoyable and you see increases in motivation, persistence, and enjoyment. Let me piggyback on that because in your book, you have this research from Daniel Kahneman that shows that there are three specific things that basically make us at least happy. One is household chores, which I think some people would say, ah, I can do that. But number two, you mentioned it earlier, is commuting to and from work. So we're not a big fan of that. But being at work is number three. And so if we believe that human happiness leads people to perform more optimally, which you were talking about earlier, what are more impactful ways that workplace managers can elevate their employees' daily work experience and make them feel happier, be happier. Yeah, one thing is to clarify and identify the reason for the work, the why of the work, the purpose, the impact of that work. That goes a long way. The other, as we talked about before, is creating opportunities for friendship being formed. And those, I think, at the crux of it can have such a significant impact on employees' satisfaction in their work days. Also, I share some strategies in the book, you know, even for those other things like commuting 
and household chores that are activities in our days that are not fun, but they are necessary and required. And one of the strategies I share is bundling. So this is coming out of work by Katie Milkman and her colleagues where they talk about it for helping motivate. I talk about it in the sense of, you know, commute time is unfun because you're sort of wading through it. It in itself feels like a waste of time. But if you bundle that time with an activity that actually is more satisfying, is more enjoyable, then that time you spend feels more enjoyable. So for instance, commuting, Every time you get in the car, turn on an audiobook. When I do my work on time poverty and I ask people to complete the sentence, I don't have time to. One of the frequent answers is that I don't have time to read for pleasure with the implication that that is something that they would like to do. But if every time you got in the car, you turned on an audiobook, then all of a sudden you would get through a book every week or so or podcasts that are informative and inspiring Every time that you have to clean the kitchen, turn on a podcast and all of a sudden that time feels more worthwhile. So a lot of this is about intentionality. Again, that instead of our default of, you know, you get on the subway for your morning commute mindlessly scrolling through social media, if you instead open a book then or listen to a podcast and you're intentional with that time, it all of a sudden feels more worthwhile as opposed to like a waste. Wonderful. I want to stop here for a quick moment before we go through the heartbeat round. So everyone, we're going to be right back. Thanks to you, the Lead from the Heart podcast currently ranks in the top 1.5% of all podcasts in the world, and it's been heard in 163 countries. If you'd like to contact Mark about speaking for a live or virtual event or consulting for your company or team, you can contact us directly at markccrowley.com. Now, listeners to the podcast can win your very own copy of Mark's book. Mark will sign and inscribe a copy of Lead from the Heart so you can give it to your boss or manager or keep it yourself. Simply connect with Mark on LinkedIn and ask to be entered in the drawing. Winners will be notified directly and announced on LinkedIn soon. And one of those winners will also receive a free 30-minute one-on-one Q&A Zoom session with Mark. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. And now, back to the show. Cassie, you may not be aware, but we have a tradition on our podcast where we take a quick break from this discussion and transition to what we call the heartbeat round. So what I'd like to do is ask you a dozen questions about your life philosophy, influences, what makes you personally happy, and have you answer each one with a quick, instinctive answer. So in other words, answer them in a heartbeat. Are you game? (laughs) Yes, let's go for it. One book you think should be required reading for every human being alive. Ethics for a New Millennium by the Dalai Lama. Besides your marriage and the birth of your two children, the life experience that so far has made you happiest. Um, seeing my daughter sleeping with my book, Happier Hour, on her pillow. <laughs> So much for the tooth fairy, huh? (laughs) (laughs) One thing people would be surprised to learn about you. Gosh, I feel like I was quite disclosive in the book. So lots is known. Maybe that I don't like to eat beets. Me either. The trait (laughs) you most admire in other people. Kindness. The trait that destroys the most leadership careers. 
thinking in terms of me instead of we. Piece of advice you'd give your younger self. It's okay to be you. Your approach to aging. Enjoy it. First app you check in the morning. Email. Quality you consider most essential to your success. Positivity. Something you'd really like to see changed in the world. Greater compassion. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. And finally, if you could transport yourself to the happiest place in the world for you, where would you be? Just down the block on the beach in Santa Monica. Wonderful. Well, you actually did answer these in a heartbeat. So thank you very much. <laughs> Those are great. <laughs> no problem. So Cassie, our podcast tradition is to give our guests the final word. And so my question is, is there any wisdom from the book that we absolutely did not cover that you'd especially like to highlight for this leadership audience? Yeah. And that is that there is so much potential happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment in our ordinary everyday experiences. And just as an example, this sort of speaks to the fact that it's not about quantity of time, it's really about the quality of the time to have the impact, is my weekly coffee date with my daughter. This is 30 minutes. I was born out of a functional routine of me wanting to get coffee, caffeine, on the way to drop her off at preschool and me to my office. But we turned this routine into a ritual, and it became this 30 minutes each week where it was just about the two of us. And she'd get her hot chocolate. I got my flat white. <laughs> we have we munch on croissants. And it is 30 minutes where it is the two of us connected. And it has such a profound effect on my sense of closeness. And what's interesting is that this is such a seemingly everyday experience that, you know, it could be that I expect it will continue to happen sort of weekly, right? But that's not true. And oftentimes, I think yet another exercise that I have my students do, and I talk about in the book is counting times left. And this is important because it makes us recognize that these seemingly everyday, mundane, ordinary moments that are always accessible to us and that we therefore don't pay much attention to are actually more precious and limited than we think. And by recognizing that, it leads us to pay more attention. So with my coffee date with my daughter, I calculate we've gone on about 400 coffee dates in our life so far. The next step is to count how many times are you likely to do it in the future, accounting for the fact that circumstances in your life will change, circumstances in the other person's life will change. So my daughter is seven now. When she's 12, I suspect she'll probably want to go to the coffee shop with her friends instead of me. So it won't be <laughs> weekly. And then she's going to go off to college. And then she's probably going to move and live in New York, <laughs> you know, far away. And so I estimated that we have about 230 coffee dates left in our life. And in looking at the percentage or the proportion, we have 36% of our coffee dates together left. That is far less than half, and she's only seven years old. <laughs> right. It's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And what that does is that recognition is it motivates me to protect time for this. And when I'm engaging in that time, I am in being mode, you know, that my phone is away. My to-do list that's constantly in my head is quieted. So I've shifted from that doing mode 
that we all are so often in. And I shifted to be in those moments because they are so precious. And it's only 30 minutes, but it has a big effect because we anticipate, we look forward to this time during the time we're fully engaged and then we remember it. So I think that if there's anything to take away from my work, it is not these answers for satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and connection. It's not about how much time you have available or even the quantity of the time you spend. It is absolutely about making those times as rich and sort of worthwhile as possible. Cassie, thank you so very much for joining us. On behalf of my audience, we are very, very grateful for your time and insights and wish you great success with your book. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Lovely meeting you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Before we say goodbye, I want to thank the people who helped me succeed. These include Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Kim Boynton, Anna Boynton, Susan DeRoche, and my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And great thanks go to you for listening. We produce this show with love for you and hope you will keep tuning in. And finally, I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now.